You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. I'm going to be honest with you and tell you from the very beginning, this is probably the second hardest sermon I had to preach before you guys, uh, especially dealing with the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. It's a complex subject. Sometimes it can be hard to understand. It's very misunderstood. Um, But before we get started, I want to be very clear about what the unpardonable sin is not. The unpardonable sin or the, the unforgivable sin is not suicide. It's not really where they started, but hear me. The blood of Jesus covers that sin also. But you say, James, what, what, if, it, uh, what if they die in their sin and they're, they, 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 they didn't confess that sin before the Lord or un, being unrepented of it? Doesn't it mean that they'll be separated from God forever? No, because on day one, when you confess Christ as Lord, at that moment, by the grace of God and the forgiveness of his blood, all of your sins had been forgiven. This is why the gospel is such good news. It's not that we're trying to earn God's favor, but at the moment that you accept Jesus, at the moment that you see him as the pardon of your sin, the hope for your salvation, at that very moment, all of your sins, past, present, and even future, those sins that you don't even know about yet, that you haven't stumbled upon yet, they have been forgiven in the grace, the blood, and the presence of a forgiving Savior in Jesus. Amen? So the unforgivable sin is not suicide. The unforgivable sin also is not divorce. You know, we have a high value of marriage here because God has placed a high value on it as well. But somehow those who are divorced are treated by other Christians as if they have committed the unforgivable sin. And I'm here to tell you that those who have been divorced or even remarried are not those who have committed the unforgivable sin. Even those who reject Jesus. They are not the ones who have committed this heinous sin. The unpardonable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And what's the, what I want to do today is I want to spend some time thinking about what does this mean and what are we to do to respond to it? What does it mean and how are we to respond to the realities set before us today? As we work through this text, remember the lens we view this pastor from is the God um, that, that from is the, the God who is God and also God who is merciful. I love what Psalm 134 says about God. It says, with you, Lord, there is forgiveness. If there was a book written about God as far as being the, the seven hab- habits of a highly effective God, the number one habit would be forgiveness. God loves to forgive. God will always forgive. I love what Exodus 34 says about this. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. He says this. says, the Lord passed in front of them and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing and rebellion and even sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So even before we begin this conversation, it's important to know the the character of the God that we're talking about. 
We have a God who loves to forgive us and is able to forgive us because he has provided the way for us to be forgiven. Amen. Start with me in verse 22 as we begin looking through this section. Remember that the whole section of this topic is built around the healing of a demon-possessed man who was both blind and unable to speak. Look with me in verse 22. It says, then a a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him being Jesus. He healed him so that a man could both seek to speak and see. Now, let's stop right there because this is the second time where um, Jesus has done a, a miracle. He has done um, a miraculous thing in front of um, his, his naysayers or his haters. And there's a thing about the, his haters that they're constantly going back to is that Jesus cannot really be who he claims to be. But this time is different. This time is different, and here's the reason why. Because if you remember from last week, Matthew chapter 12, verse 14. Do you remember what we talked about as far as the hinge passage of this gospel of Matthew? Matthew 12, 14 says this, But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him or destroy him. So so the game has changed. The game has changed. It's not just about them having doubt about Jesus. This is out right denial. They're plotting against Jesus, not just to, 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 to um, um, bring him to uh, a shame or to bring him to um, a theological argument where he might lose. Um, they are trying to actually plot how they might destroy this man. So the game has changed. The heart posture has changed. The position has changed. The planning has changed. We're not just looking at the Bible or the Torah and trying to find out the, the miscues that Jesus is doing before our eyes. We're now huddling in a corner and trying to figure out what can we accuse him of to kill him. Notice with me in verse 22. The power of God is seen to all. It's evident. It's right there in front of you. A man who was deaf and who was blind and who was mute. He, he couldn't see, he couldn't speak. Jesus of Nazareth has healed him. He's healed him completely. He's complete, he has healed him fully. He's healed him in such a way that there's no way in which you could deny that this man has been healed. And look at the question that now comes up. The question is very, very pointing for us in verse 27, excuse me, verse 23. All the crowds were astonished and said, could this be the son of God or son of David? Could this be the son of David? Another way of saying this, a better translation in the original language would be, this couldn't be the son of David. Could it? It, it, This is not a question of um, skepticism that the people are asking. It's a question of uncertainty. It's a question of wanting to know for themselves. Man, he's doing all of this work. Could this be the one? Could he be the one? Could Jesus be who he actually claims himself to be? It's a good question for all of us in this room to always have on our mind. It's a good question for all of us to think think about. And the one thing that I love about this is it shows us the the great dichotomy that Jesus and, and Matthew, I think, wants us to see is that Jesus will accept your doubt, but Jesus... Um, but, but, but Jesus um, cannot accept your denial. Once you deny him and once you completely call him something that he's not, you actually are starting to harden your heart towards him as we will see as we go through these verses. 
So all the crowds were astonished, and they said, could this be the Son of God? Now, verse 24, my, my Bible says, when the Pharisees heard this. Another version may say, but, but when the Pharisees heard this. This Greek word, when or but, is an adversive. So what Matthew wants us to see is that he's trying to compare the response of this miracle, the, the, how the people have responded with the question, could this be the son of David, with the Pharisees' response that this absolutely couldn't be the son of David. You see this, you see this dichotomy that is being drawn out of those who believe and those who are willing to, to, to dwell in this place of uncertainty. And you also see a place where people are not willing to dwell in a place of uncertainty, not only because they don't believe, but they actually, because they actually want to destroy. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard thing as a follower of Jesus when someone wants to destroy you, isn't it? They couldn't, they couldn't deny Jesus' power, so what they did was they couldn't deny his power, so they went after the person. And this is the same thing when that will happen to you and me, beloved, as followers of Jesus. There are some people that can't deny you being a Christian, the way you live your life, the way that you sacrifice and the way you serve and you love Jesus. But what they can't, if they can't uh, pin you on the things you do, they will pin you on your character and who you say you are to be, and they'll question that. Verse 24, this is what they do to Jesus. It says, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So the, the plan has changed. We're not just talking about Jesus being a good teacher. We're now talking about Jesus being a heretic. We're talking about Jesus now not being associated with all that is good and holy and righteous, but now we're talking about Jesus being associated with the very depth of evil, the very presence of evil, and being constrained and even empowered by the very presence of evil. He says, you are getting your power not from God, but you're getting your power from the ruler of the demons. Verse 25 says this, it says, knowing their thoughts. I love this because it doesn't quite tell us know how Jesus knew their thoughts. I don't know if Jesus used his omniscience in this point where he, 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 he knew their thoughts because he is God incarnate and he just knew what they were thinking. Or he did what <clears throat> a lot of married couples do where you could just read their body language, right? You say something to your wife and she don't even have to respond to you, you just can read her body language like, oop, I should not have said that. That was the wrong thing to say. Let me backtrack and try it again. I don't know which one it was, but whatever way it was, Jesus knew something that they didn't want him to know. Jesus put and understood exactly what they were struggling with, and in all graciousness, he pursues them despite their denial of him. Isn't that the case for every single one of us, that Jesus pursues us despite our denial of him? Now, don't get me wrong. All you, everybody haven't been holy rollers all their lives. We, 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 we've, we've, we've been in the world. We've done things that we regret. If not, we wouldn't, be, we wouldn't be qualified for Jesus' salvation plan at the cross of Calvary. All of us come at the cross with the same, with the same resume. But Jesus still pursues us in graciousness and holiness and with much patience. Remember when we talked about Jesus last week? It says, a bruised reed he will not break. Jesus is patient with the patientless. He, he's patient with the pro problematic of this world. And guys, I, I'll be the first one to admit, I'm problematic. I'm a lot to deal with. 
for myself and for my wife and my family and for you as your pastor. I'm a lot to deal with. Ask Pastor Nick. He'll tell you some stories. Uh, I'm just playing. Uh, this, this, is, this, is what we're, this is where we are. This is the, the, the place that we, we are at at this time. He says this. Jesus um, takes their accusation. He hears their accusations without them, them wanting to know his accusations, and he addresses them head on. He addresses them in two ways. He says, one, what you're thinking is illogical. And then the second thing he says is what you're thinking is inconsistent. And the third thing he talks about, we'll talk about a little bit, is that what you're thinking is actually impossible. What you're thinking is illogical, is inconsistent, and it's impossible. Notice what he says with me in verse 25. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? This is the place in which Jesus reminds us that what you're saying is illogical. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for, G- for Satan to be against himself. Why would Satan be causing demons to come out of his own kingdom? If I am a king and I have my vice regents or I have my soldiers in a particular area that I want to occupy, I'm going to tell them to go further in and not come further out. I'm going to go tell them to seek and destroy so that I can obtain the land or whatever treasure that I'm trying to get. I'm going to tell them to go in and not come out. And what Jesus says um, with with such humility, but with such uh, pinpoint accuracy, he says, listen, what you're thinking is illogical. He says, every kingdom divided against himself is headed for destruction. If Satan drives out Satan, he is driving himself out. How then will his kingdom stand? I love that. It helps us to see that Jesus, when we place our faith in Jesus, we're not just placing our faith in some abstract reality of of, of some stories that we're hearing. We're placing our, our faith in a real person who has entered into our time and our history and our context a man who has not shied away from the problems or the evils of this world, who is, not, who is not ashamed to associate with the lowly and with the broken, but even call the proud and the, and the self-righteous to repentance. Jesus is, um, <laughs> he's the man, to, to, put it, to put it in short language. He is the man. He is a warrior for God, proclaiming the kingdom of God for the very people of God and the presence of God to be filled in this broken world. Verse 27, he says, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? He, so he not only says is, what you're saying is illogical, he's also saying it's inconsistent. In this time, it wasn't very common, but there were times and instances of um, exorcisms happening even before Jesus, where people saw and recognized the very power of God being manifested, so much so that demons were actually being pulled out and being evicted from the places in which they inhabited. A quick word on demons, this is before we even go on. Demons are simply spiritless beings, are spirit, spirit beings who are bodiless. And they're wanting to find a place to occupy themselves, to torment, harass, and even if they can, possess different bodies and human people in this world. And Jesus, as a, as a kingdom bearer, as a true son of God, has come to have, have these things, these imps, if you will, evicted so that the spirit of God can now reign and rule in its place. We'll actually look at this a little bit more closely next week when we talk about um, um, Jesus driving away unclean spirits and more in depth and more in depthness. 
He says this, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. What is he talking about here? He's saying, listen, the very people who, the word son here is also another word for follower. It's a person who's following. He's saying, listen, even the people that are in your camp cast out and exercise demons. He says, so listen, if you're calling me, uh, if, you're, if you're saying that I'm associated with Satan, what about those who are following you? Are they associated with Satan? Because they're doing the same thing that I'm doing. It's inconsistent. It doesn't make sense. He then sums it up, though, in verse 28. He says, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then what? Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He says, if, look, if, if, if what I'm doing is truly from God, if what I'm saying, and you're seeing it in power, you're seeing the evidences of what God is doing, you're seeing it for yourselves, but yet you're in denial. He says, listen, if this is happening, the kingdom of God has come upon you. I love this. Jesus only used this word kingdom of God three times in the whole gospel of Matthew. And he wants us to have a focus on that. I love this. Jesus talks about this time and time again. Um, from the very beginning of Matthew, he said um, to the very beginning, he says, listen, um, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near you. But in this passage, he says, listen, um, if I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And if God's kingdom is present, then there must be a king to represent him. God's kingdom cannot be a kingdom without a king. He says in verse 29, how can someone enter a strong man's house, steal his possession unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Jesus is making um, these, these statements to help us understand the beauty and the, the majesty of his character. He's saying, listen, if these things are happening, then God's kingdom is present. If these are, things are happening, then someone stronger than Satan must be here because Satan wouldn't just bow down to to anyone. He must bow down to someone who is stronger than he. I love this because it reminds us that the miracles of Jesus and the miracles of the Bible are not just kind of quick wonders for us to look at. The miracles of Jesus remind us what God has always intended this world to be. When Jesus looks at a blind man, he gives him sight. He's not just trying to do kind of a willy-dilly magic trick. What he's doing is he's saying, listen, in this broken world, in this broken state, in this brokenness that we're in, we live in a world that God did not intend us to live in. So I'm going to send my king to rectify the brokenness that you created and you allowed within this world. So every time you see a blind man receive his sight, you have to understand that what the proclamation there is that the king is here. Every time you see a dead man come to life, the proclamation is the same. The king is here. Every time you see a, a paralyzed arm or a paralyzed limb come to life with vitality and movement, you have to understand what is being said there is that the king is here. The miracles of Jesus isn't just some magic show. The miracles of Jesus point us to the reality of what God always intended and has always created this world to be, full of his presence and full of his people, and full, of a, a full with a king who models and represent him rightly before his people. This is what the miracles point to. It's not just a magic show. Please, if we're teaching our kids that in Sunday school, you teach them at home, please help them understand. There's something so much more that's going on. There's so much more. And this is the, this is the weight of, of that reality, is that if 
Jesus is able to rectify our brokenness, then Jesus must be the rectifier. He must be the one we have to look to to be changed. He must be the one that we have to look to to be made whole and to be made redeemed and to be, and to be, made, to made, be made new and to be recreated. Jesus is the one. The miracles are a sign for the one who provides life. The miracles in themselves are not life, but they point us to the one who gives us life and has created new life through his blood for us. He says in verse 30, anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. I love this. Jesus puts, puts the line, put the, puts the, what do you call it? He puts a line in the sand. <laughs> uh, in another gospel, some uh, men find a woman in adultery, and they uh, pretty, much, pretty much put their line in the sand with Jesus and say, what should we do with her? Should we stone her? Should we kill her? The Torah says we should kill her. He, Jesus looks at him and says, listen, you who without sin, you, you throw the first stone. And one by one, all of them just dropped their stones and walked away. And he looked at the woman and he says, listen, don't sin no more. You're forgiven. There's a lot of stands, a lot of lines that we put on Jesus, but this is the line that he puts on us. Verse 30, anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. I love this. I love this because it reminds us of the character of Christ. It reminds us of what it means to follow him and to seek him and to know him. That, that there's no neutrality with God. There's no neutrality with Jesus. And if you are sitting on that fence of neutrality, to be neutral with, to, with, to be neutral with Jesus is actually to be against him altogether. You can't be neutral with him. Either you are for him or you're not for him. And, 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 and Jesus is calling his people, he's calling them to understand this reality, to make a choice about what you see. He talks about it more specifically in verses 31 through 32. What I love about this, though, is that, um, let me put a pause here before we go into this next part of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because I do want to be clear that what Jesus is saying here is not, he's not saying that it does not mean that anyone at any point who rejects Jesus can't be a true Christian later. He's not saying that. We have too many examples in the scriptures to look at this. Look at Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times. He, he followed him for uh, three years and he still denied him three times. Yet he was fully restored, not only to forgiveness, but he was also given a position of leadership in the early church. Yes, he was denying Christ. Yes, uh, he was denying Christ. Uh, was denying Christ's sin on Peter's part? Yes, it was. But it was not unforgivable blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Look at Paul. Paul, his story was, was not one of uh, ignorance. His story was one of ignorance than belief or acceptance of Jesus but one of hardened opposition to Jesus and his followers. But such open, hostile rejection was not an unforgivable sin. You can also look to our stories. We have rejected Jesus. We have spoken against him. We have slandered him. This word blasphemy simply means this. It means to speak against someone. It's to, it's to speak against or to, 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 to have a wrong word or to have um, to slander someone's name, to, to speak against someone's name, person, or character. 
So he says in verse 31, therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. So what does this mean? It's not saying that you say, it's not you saying Holy Spirit when you stub your toe. Let me just make that clear. If you stub your toe and you say Holy Spirit, you didn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So please, if you said that, you're, you're off the hook. Be free and forgiven, please, in Jesus' name. You, you, didn't, you didn't commit this, this heinous sin. But what it does mean is this. It is a hardened evaluation of Jesus' work as being demonic in origin. It's a hardened evaluation. It is a hardened evaluation of Jesus' work, his work that he does, who he is, everything that's associated with him as being demonic in origin. That's what it means to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. It means that you take the goodness, the beauty, the grandeur of God, and you accredit, you accredit that beauty, that grandeur, to the origins and to the person of Satan. That's what it means. It is a misassociation of the character and nature of God, so much so that we take the beauty of who God is and we associate it with the kingdom of Satan himself. I like to say it in three ways. It's a hardened rejection of get, uh, denial of Jesus. It's a perversion of God's kingdom values. And lastly, it's a slander of God's name. We have to remember, though, that this isn't the first time that we've seen the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. When, do, uh, when else did we see in the Old Testament specifically? When did we see a denial of the word of God? When else did we see a perversion of the values of the kingdom of God. Where else have we seen in the Old Testament a slander against the very name of God? We saw it in the very sin that caused all this stuff to happen in the very beginning in Genesis 3. Remember the words that Satan spoke? He, he didn't come to him, he, he didn't come to them with just uh, words of, um, he didn't just come with them with words um, speaking against God, he came with words that actually spoke against the very name, the person, the character of God himself. You remember the first question he asked? Satan slyly goes to the woman and says in verse Genesis 3, 1, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Notice what he's doing. He's starting to create this denial of the word of God, the word and the command that God has. He starts her first off by denying the command that God has clearly given. And it's the same temptation that we, we experience today. Satan does not change in this way. He tempts us with the same things over and over and over again. And he starts with this subtle hint that God can't be trusted, that God can't be good, that God's word is not sufficient for you. He says, did God really say? Are you really hearing God right? Now, listen, if you struggle with doubt or you're wondering if God is really real, you're in a good place. We want to hear your questions. We want to interact with you. We want to walk with you. Please don't feel this is not a place where you can't come with your questions and with the things you have about the Bible. Please come. Please learn. Please grow. 
because I have questions about the Bible I'm still working through, amen? But this isn't just about questions. This is going to the very intent. This is going to the very person and nature of what God has said. And honestly, a lot of times we give Adam and Eve uh, too much ease, like, oh yeah, they, they sin. You know, I mean, I, if I was there, I'd probably sin too. No, 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 no. In, in, in the beginning in Genesis chapter three, there was no sin present. This world was full with the goodness and beauty of God. And just, as, and just as hard as it is for you and I to think we can live a perfect life now, it was just as impossible for them to actually think that they couldn't live a perfect life before God. It was a drastic thing that they did. It wasn't just them biting a, a fruit. It wasn't just them taking an, an, an apple and just eating it or, or whatever. It wasn't an apple. Whatever fruit it was, it, it wasn't just taking a fruit and partaking of it. It's them going to the very opposite extreme by the temptation of Satan himself. So he starts off with the denial of the word of God. Then notice the second question he says. He, he not only um, has a denial of God's word, he then has a per- pervasion of his will, perversion of his will. He says, no, you will not die. God's not telling you the full truth. You won't die. I know God said that, but that's not really what's going to happen. Don't believe him. Believe me. I know what I'm talking about. Don't listen to the person who gave you life and took you from the dust and breathed life into your lungs and made you a living. Don't listen to him. Listen to me. You won't die. He perverts the very will, the very ways of God. And he makes her question if God is not, not just if his word is true, but if what God has told me is true. And then lastly, notice the last thing he says. He says, God knows, looking at verse 5, God, Genesis 3, 5, God knows that when you eat of it, when you eat, <clears throat> your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then again, this is an outright slander against the very name and person of God. See, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't something new. It's actually what got us into the very place that we're in right now. It started from the very beginning. And honestly, we're fighting against it every single day of our lives, taking what is good, taking what is pure, taking what is holy, taking what is righteous, and equating it to what is evil. Had a hard time thinking about illustrations to help us to see this and to understand this. But let me give you a couple that just kind of came across my mind this week as I was thinking and praying through this. If blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is looking at the good works that Jesus is doing and explaining and dismissing them as demonic, if blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to see the work of the Spirit so plainly and call it evil for attributing the gracious, restoring work of God's Spirit to Satan, that is beyond forgiveness. If blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is that, of that we do have some signs and symptoms in our society today. Think with me a little bit, and I'm going to be, uh, use coded language here because we have little people in the audience, which is great, but think with me about our, our, sexual, um, our ethics in regarding to male and female relationships. Think about abstinence. Think about, cel- uh, think about being celibate, living a celibate life, or living an abs- a, la- a life of abstinence. Is that seen as something that is cel- celebrated? Something that God has called us to in our, in our singleness? Something that God has called us to, to live towards is, is that, that is, there are many people in this world who looks at that command from God and say, no, that's not, that's not good. That's not good. Think about 
monogamous, being in a monogamous marriage, being married to one person, or think about heterosexual marriage, exclusively claiming that man, marriage is made between one man and one woman in covenantal vow through, the, through time and through eternity. And people will look at that and they will say, you know what, that, that's maybe good for you, but that's not good for me. That, that is not good for me. That, that is actually evil. The thing that God has created for us. Think about race in the gospel. Think how we hear all the time that race is antithetical to the gospel. That let's talk about the gospel, but let's not talk about race. Let's not talk about how the race calls us to be ambassadors of who God is. To be, as we talked last week, being proponents of bringing the gospel message, knowing that the nations will put their hope in his name. Not a nation, but the nations. Not just Gentiles. Not just white folk, not just black folk, but the nations that God has given us, this is why we gather so that they may find and put their hope in Jesus' name. And if you can't understand how the gospel is connected to that, then you, mu- you have to be reading an uh, inadequate gospel or not fully, fully pictured gospel. The gospel speaks to our horizontal relationship with God, but it all, uh, yeah, our vertical relationship with God, but it also speaks to our horizontal relationships with one another. Being redeemed and restored and being brought together as brothers and sisters under the banner and under the kingdom of a good king named Jesus. This is what Jesus has called us to. And in our society, we see these things that God has called good and we allow the society to tell us, no, that that's not good. That's actually evil. It's actually contrary to what we want to be about. It's archaic. It's barbaric. It's out of style. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful of looking at what God has created as good and holy and righteous for our, for our health and our flourishing and allowing it to be called evil. Be careful. Jesus gives us a great analogy in verses 33 through 37, he says, Make either the good tree the good, the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. I love this. This good tree that Jesus is talking about is he's talking about himself. He's pretty much saying. It makes no sense. It's insane to say he is bad or he's a bad tree producing good fruit. It's impossible. It it doesn't make sense to say Jesus is bad in origin, but he produces good works. He says, listen, only a good tree can produce good works. And the thing I love about this analogy of a tree is that the only way that you know a tree is looking at it through all its seasons of life. You can't look at a tree in the fall and say it's useless because it doesn't have any leaves. You got to wait to the summer to see when it gets its leaves and see what actually is produced from that tree. You can't look in the winter when it's cold and when it's, and when it's freezing outside. Or you can't even look at in the spring when buds are just now starting to bloom anew. You need a full season to understand the tree, the, the tree of a person's life. And Jesus is saying, if you look at my life, if you look at my work, I am a good tree that produces good fruit. I'm not a bad tree that produces bad fruit. 
He says it plainly in verse 31, either make the tree good and its fruit will be good or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. He says, brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? I love this. For from the mouth speaks, excuse me, for the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. And I love this. I love this because it reminds us that it is what the heart is full of. It is what the heart is full of. It is what the heart has an abundance of that determines what anyone says. We as people do not speak out of character. We don't speak out of character. If you really want to know what a person believes or feels, listen to what they say. If you want to really understand and see if they are truly following Jesus, don't look at what they do. Listen to what they say because out of your, 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 your mouth, out of the abundance of your heart comes what your mouth will speak. In the end, in verses uh, 35 through 37, he says a good person. Notice he says good three times and evil three times. A good person produces good things from his storeroom of good. An evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. Now, we have to be careful how we define our definitions here. Evil here is not just the presence of absolute evil. Evil is the absence of absolute good. And if that's the way we're defining evil, the way that God has defined evil, then all of us have some aspect of evil in our hearts. There is none of us who have lived in an aspect where we are before God having absolute 100% goodness in our lives all the time. We have this sin origin. We have been born in and shaped by this thing called iniquity. You don't believe me? Then go down to the, the soldier and kids room right now and just watch some three or four-year-olds. You don't got to teach kids how to sin. You don't got to teach them how to do bad. You actually got to do the, just the opposite. Don't do that. Do this. Don't smack your sister. Hug your sister. Don't throw that at mommy. Please don't throw that at daddy. Jesus is graciously warning us. See, Jesus is warning us in, in, in the last verse here. 37, for by your words, you will be acquitted, and by your words, you will be condemned. Excuse me, verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will be, have to account for every careless word they speak. Jesus is warning. Remember, this is a sign of grace. This is God even pursuing those who want to kill him, who want to deny him. Jesus is warning his opponents. And this is the essence of what grace entails. He's warning these religious leaders that these careless words that Jesus' work is demonic will eventually result in your condemnation. You will not be forgiven for this hardened position or opposition to me. This is what Jesus is saying to them. Now, is there, can they be forgiven if they look to him anew and say, Father, I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. Yes, they can be forgiven right now. But Jesus is saying, listen, if you continue down this road, if you continue to have this hardened position towards me, if you continue to harden your heart towards the things of God, if you continue to see the goodness and beauty and glory of God and a source associated to a kingdom of Satan, there is no hope for you. I love this because it helps us to see that our words reveal what we are really like. What is really going on in the inside of us? Our words reveal our hearts. If you want to tame your tongue, then give your heart to Jesus for him to tame it. He can do it. He's more than able. 
He's done it for me. And I know he can do it for you. So in closing, what are we to do with this? Let me give you just a couple of final things. Number one, if, if you are one who's in the midst right now who's questioning, have I committed the unpardonable sin? No, you have not. If you are asking this question, it shows a sensitivity and a tenderness you have towards the Holy Spirit. And it shows the work of God's grace in your life. This is not the question the religious leaders here were concerned with. They were not concerned with if they were doing this or not. That was not something they were concerned with. Remember, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is it's an hardened state. This is not describing you. Tenderness, softness towards the Holy Spirit. A person who's tender and soft towards the Holy Spirit would not ask this question. So why is it important for us to not violate our conscience? We want to remain sensitive. Don't ignore these promptings. Test, test, test them, but don't ignore them or dismiss them if you are having them. So number one, have I committed the unpardonable sin? If you're asking that question, then you're in a good place. Number two, heed and hear the warnings of Jesus. Remember in verse 30, he says very clearly, there's no middle ground with me. Either you're with him or you're against him. Jesus is saying to the crowd and these religious leaders, you can't just remain a spectator. It's time for you to decide. It's time for you to take a side. Either you're with me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. Make sure we understand what this means for us today. It does not mean that there is not space to investigate, to process, to reason, or to question. It does not mean for some of us here that you, mean that you have to decide right now. When Jesus made this challenge, he had, he had been working in Galilee for almost a year now. So it's not like that Jesus just showed up and said, okay, now choose you this day what God you're going to serve. But some of us here, this may be for you. And the language we use here is that you're seeking. You're seeking to find out if Jesus is, is, is true. And if that's you today, you're in a good place. But there are also some of us here who have taken the time, we've questioned, we've had those questions answered, you have been investigated, you have listened, you have seen, but you're still in the middle. You're still unable to commit to Jesus. You, you've, you've been hanging around, you've been lurking around, but you cannot stay in the middle indefinitely. Yes, Jesus is patient. But the more you resist, the more hardened you become towards the spirit of the living God. What else do you need? What's keeping you from surrendering to him? Eventually, you trust. It is not just a blind leap. It's not. Even as we said earlier, in regards to being a part of this church. I love seeing people committing and wanting to be a part of what God is doing in the life of this church. And I say yes and amen to that. I want to leave you with one word, one of the best scriptures that, that is always written. Romans 10, 9 and 10 and verse 13. Paul says these words to the church of Rome. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved.
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke and he gave it to his disciples. He gave it to those whom he loved and who have followed him. He says, take eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he blessed it and gave thanks and said, drink this. This is the blood of my new covenant. Drink and remember me. What I love about our church is that every week we come to this table. We come to the table at the communion table knowing and accepting the salvation that God has provided for us in Jesus. Remembering that God has not only shown us good works, but that he is a good and loving father. And not associating the works that God has done to the kingdom of darkness is a proclamation you're making each time you come and take this bread and you dip it in the juice. It's a proclamation that speaks to the reality of who God is and who he's, called, he's making us to become in the likeness and image of his son. Don't take this coming up lightly. Don't take it lightly. It's a beautiful proclamation to the reality of who God is and who we are as his church. If you are visiting here or if you're not a Christian, I, I ask that you, you stay seated uh, and just listen to the words that are being spoken um, and, and sung over you during that time. This is a table for believers, those who believe and have accepted and are following Jesus wholeheartedly right now today. But if that is you and you've never turned and you've never faced Jesus, today's the day of salvation. Today is the day to look to him anew and say, God, I have seen you and, and, and thought of you wrongly. I now look to you for who you say you are. You are the son of God. You are Emmanuel. You are God with us. You are Savior. You are Lord. And I accept that reality. I accept the death that you have, have given and the gift that you freely died for the forgiveness of my sins right now today. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to give your life to the one who created it and not just who created it, but who can sustain it and who can continue to reform it more and more to the image of his son. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you and love you for the goodness of today. Thank you for being with us despite our doubt. And Lord, even despite our denial, God, you have proven yourself to be good, kind, and gracious. Father, help us as we come to this table to come as men, to come as women, to come as your children, proclaiming the reality of Jesus and the reality of him being hung on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. May your word go forth and may it not come back void. May our minds be changed. May some soul be saved for the advancement of your kingdom. Father, thank you that you have truly given us all that we need in Christ. May we find our full satisfaction. May we find sustenance in, in him today. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.